And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. So, uh, lots of stuff to get into this morning with markets and kind of everything else. Uh, real quick to correct a mistake I made yesterday. I know it doesn't happen often, but um, I said CPI report was today. It's actually tomorrow. So uh, Thursday is CPI. Friday is uh, BCE. So we'll get those inflation numbers out. Um, but anyway, outside of that uh, bit of a correction, let's talk about markets. Uh, yesterday, of course, you know, is just uh, kind of this continuation of the sell-off. Um, we're moving into the kind of the heart of summer, so to speak, for the markets. Um, which is August and September, volume is low. Um, the vast majority of Europe kind of closes it down. You know, if you live in Europe, you get the entire month of August off for vacation. Must be nice. <laughs> so volume dries up. Uh, so you have a little bit more volatility in the markets. And again, the market had had a very strong rally since the beginning of the year. So what we're going through now, really not a surprise. Um, we talked about the fact we're wrapping up earnings season, and that's coming to a close pretty quickly. There's the, really the only kind. There's a couple of companies that report late, Nvidia being one of those. Um, but for the most part, we've got the vast majority of the S&P now behind us. A few reports out uh, today and tomorrow, uh, but pretty much by the end of this week, that's going to wrap up earnings season. So far, it hasn't been bad. Um, you know, we're beating very lowered estimates, so not surprising. We've got a very high beat rate of earnings. But it has been interesting that the reward for beating earnings has not been fantastic. Companies that are beating earnings are being rewarded to some small degree for the most part. Now, there's some outliers of that. Uh, there's been some companies that reported earnings that have done very well. But for the most part, across the average, um, companies beating estimates really have not been, you know, handsomely rewarded. Their stocks have traded up a little bit, but that's because stocks had had such a big run up to this point that all, and we talked about this before, is that kind of all the good news had gotten priced in. And, and so the, the, when these companies announced that they beat earnings, it was like, well, you better beat earnings because we were expecting you to. And, and so the reward really wasn't there to be had. Now, again, as we get further into this year, We'll see what happens. But um, something we'll talk about this morning as well. If you take a look at the NFIB report yesterday, so this was kind of interesting. The National Federation of Independent Business. Now, the vast majority of those that are surveyed are very small businesses. They are 10 or less employees. In fact, about 60% of the of survey goes to companies with five or less employees. And you go, well, what do they know about the economy? Well, they are the economy. 50% of, you know, basically, of the economy are very, very small businesses. Think about all the businesses right around your house um, that are creating income and activity uh, for the economy. They have one to five employees. A lot of these businesses are. Maybe they have up to 10. There's not that many companies like Apple and Google, these companies that have 10,000 employees or more, those actually make up a fairly small percentage of the number of businesses in the country. Out of 30 million businesses that are registered in the U.S., only about 6 million of them have employees. And so again, when you take a look at these, uh, something like that small business survey, that really is kind of the heartbeat of America. Now, what we're seeing there is, is an uptick in their sentiment. They're starting to see better opportunities. Now, they're still concerned about sales right now, of course, but 
their overall sentiment is beginning to pick up. They're also starting to spend more money on CapEx. So this is an actual very interesting turn. And of course, you know, if you take a look at some of the economic data, um, we've had this very, and this is kind of an article that we had written uh, out yesterday talking about market cycle lows and beginning to look for some signs of improvement. And we're beginning to see that, right? We're coming off these very low levels of economic activity, starting to see a little bit of an uptick here. Does that mean that all the concerns are behind us? Absolutely not. But it is important that, you know, we are starting to see a little bit of a pickup here. Sentiment is improving um, of consumers. So the, the risk of this kind of deep negative recession everybody been, has been worried about may be fading somewhat. We'll see, right? We'll see. It's a bit early, but we are starting to see some, some positive kind of, of turn in some of this data. Again, it's very early, so it can certainly turn back lower, but you know, those are things we'll talk about. Okay, so we got some stuff to get into this morning, talking about stimulus and support and those type of things. Here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, the market did sell off here a bit yesterday. And again, um, we kind of talked about two things yesterday in particular, you know, when we were doing our, our morning market wrap, is that we had rallied to the 20-day moving average. And we said yesterday, if we took out those previous lows of, of this kind of sell-off, that would suggest that probably we're going to continue lower. And we actually did that yesterday morning. We took out that previous low. Now, we did rally back into the end of the day, had some buying. So that was kind of positive. But we're still working this kind of clear trend towards that 50-day moving average. So again, the, the market's still under some selling pressure here. MACD sell signal in place. We're not deeply, deeply oversold yet on the relative strength index either. So again, there's still some more risk here that we could go a, a bit lower. Um, flipping over to uh, the NASDAQ, which has kind of been the leader this year by a large degree. It actually came down and tested the 50-day moving average yesterday, bounced off of that. So that's on the tech side, that's actually a fairly good kind of, of look here. Again, not deeply, deeply oversold yet. It is getting oversold here short term. MACD sell signal still clearly in place here. But again, that kind of pullback and support hold at the 50-day moving average for the NASDAQ is certainly uh, encouraging. And, and again, you know that kind of really hinges right now on the uh, on Apple kind of getting its act together. You know, Apple recently reported earnings and had a, a fairly big sell-off. Uh, Apple cut right through the 50-day moving average on that gap lower when they reported earnings. Of course, earnings were not, you know, fantastic seller as everybody expected. This is one of those one-off companies that actually got punished for some bad earnings. Uh, cut right through the 50-day moving average. Did find a bit of support at the 100-day moving average yesterday. So really, this uh, kind of position of the NASDAQ is going to be kind of hinged on whether or not Apple can get its act back together here or not. So Apple's such a big component of the NASDAQ index, also the S&P, but kind of more of a representation. We need to see Apple begin to improve here um, to help give the, the overall NASDAQ support. Apple is very oversold here. So if you've been looking for an opportunity to, to potentially add to your position in Apple, uh, this may actually be a fairly decent place if it can continue to hold here. So again, uh, if you break the 100-day moving average, the 200-day moving average at, um, for Apple is going to become much more important. Um, flipping back out of these kind of large mega cap stocks, which have really been the driver this year for the most part. And again, we've, we've talked about this before. But, you know, when you start thinking about the overall market, this has really been a market driven by about seven stocks. And that's the Apple, the Microsoft and, and the Googles of the world. Um, the the uh, 
small cap mid cap index, which is the Russell 2000. Um, it's, it's turned over here with the rest of the markets. But again, we have to kind of zoom out. When you take a look at this uh, kind of this chart, we've got to back this up a bit because you had a 20% decline in the market for the IWM last year, along with the rest of the indexes. The problem is, is IWM has never gotten out. They've never gotten back into a bull market trend yet, much as, you know, as opposed to the S&P 500, which has clearly been bullish since October. Uh, the small cap, mid cap index has literally gone nowhere has just been trading sideways. So again, this has still been a very bifurcated market of just seven stocks for the most part, driving the overall indexes higher. And again, this is why it's important for Apple to find its footing here if the NASDAQ is going to kind of continue to hold up. But again, once you get below that big surface of those big mega cap companies and look at small and mid cap, they have really not participated in this. In fact, yesterday's sell-off took the IWM back or the Russell 2000 back into a bear market. So again, very very different stories of very different groups of stocks. Anyway, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, we'll take a look at this again tomorrow and see where the markets are trading. Um, coming up after the break, though, we will pick up with this kind of this idea of, of recession. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. Michael Leibowitz did an article uh, on this as well. And we'll talk about this idea of recession. Is it coming or is it not? We'll talk about it after the break right here on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, so just talking a little bit about, you know, kind of the markets and, and where they are. Again, we're kind of in this very, you know, interesting period right now. And this is, you know, still as we've kind of talked about ad nauseum as of late, you know, it's still in this very interesting situation where you have bits of the markets doing very well and then other parts of the market not doing very well. And this certainly, you know, causes some consternation, right? Because when you take a look at the S&P 500 as an example, you go, well, that's, you know, the, you know, the market's doing great, or the NASDAQ, right? NASDAQ's, you know, we're bull market, we're doing fantastic. Well, the problem is, though, is that you would have to basically still own a vast majority of your portfolio and just a handful of stocks. And, and most people, from a risk management point of view, just simply don't do that. But this has been that kind of bifurcation in the markets that we've had this year. So if you own, you know, energy stocks or staples or utilities or REITs or anything outside of just the big kind of the big 10, you know, kind of big 10, 15 stocks in the index, your performance has not been all that great this year. And that's just that's just a function of the narrowness of this market. Now, it has broadened out here some recently. But particularly earlier this year, it was predominantly 10 stocks driving the markets. And, and again, this has just been a function of, of money crowding into a very small area of the markets on expectations of improvement, right? Things have gotten so very negative in October of last year. You know, we talked about sentiment being extremely negative. 
And so this kind of rally we've seen has certainly not been surprising. And now it's gone a lot further than many expected, but it's still nonetheless, it's, it's been good, right? So this, the question, you know, of course, this is also confounded a lot of people going, well, you know, what about the recession? We've got to have a recession. You know, we're, we're hiking interest rates and we're going to have a recession. I'm still getting a lot of emails uh, from people going, you know, well, you know, when this when this recession comes, it's going to be terrible. I need to be in the bunker, you know, type thing. Um, but there's no evidence of that right now. Now, again, maybe it does eventually, but right now there's no evidence of it. Employment's still doing okay, right? Small business sentiments turning up. So, you know, there's there's no evidence of this big crisis event that's coming. So being extremely negative hasn't been a good place to be. Running a normal, diversified, risk-managed portfolio hasn't been great, right? So if, if you've been in the camp of taking on an exceptional amount of risk, you've done good this year. But again, this isn't a normal market. And again, we'll, we'll get some normalcy kind of returning to the market eventually. The market will broaden out. We'll get a rotation um, between markets and sectors um, as the economy begins to kind of mature and get back on its feet. So we'll see some of these things. But as we talked about yesterday, and this was you know kind of the article that we published yesterday talking about market cycles, right? We'd just been through a very negative market cycle. And so seeing this rally and this turn up in the market certainly wasn't surprising. And we're beginning to see now you know, the market tends to run ahead of the economy by six to nine months. So now we're starting to see some of that, you know, kind of economic data beginning very slightly, right? Beginning to improve a bit. Just small little, small little improvements. As we talked about yesterday, you know, when you go from negative 10 to negative 9 to negative 8, it's still negative, right? But it's, it's getting better. You know, I was really sick yesterday. I'm not as sick today. I'm getting better, right? And that's, and that's the thing you, you have to think about with some of this, this data is that it's not always about it being, you know, we, we tend to think about things like the ISM index as, as a good example, right? It's in contraction, means we're going to have a recession. It's, a, it's in expansion, so we're not in a recession. We tend to think about it very binary, right? We go, it's, it's either in expansion or it's in contraction. There's not... There's no middle ground here. But see, that's not the, the correct way to look at that data. And we do this all the time. Uh, the media is terrible about this. Uh, ISM is 55. Economy's doing great. ISM, Manufacturing Index, or Services and Index, but see, the one doesn't matter. ISM Index came in today, and it's an expansionary territory. Economy's doing fantastic. Next month, it's 54. Economy's doing great. Everything's great. We're in, we're in expansion mode. Nothing to worry about. 53, 52, 51, 50. Everything's fine. We're still, you know, at, we're at 50. We're still in expansion mode. Everything's fine. 49, oh my gosh, we're in a recession. We're in contraction. See, that's the wrong way to look at the data. The data was telling you there was a problem economically coming months before because it went from 55 to 54 to 53 to 52 to 51. It was declining. It was heading towards that recessionary territory. It was telling you that, hey, I feel great today. I don't feel as great next day as I don't feel as great as I did the day before. And every day I'm getting a little bit sicker, right? But the economy is not binary, Right? It's not, I feel great, I feel terrible, I feel great. That's, that's not the way the economy works. 
it's the trend of the data that's more important. The trend of the data has been very negative now for over a year. The economy has been very sick for over a year. It would not be surprising to see the economy start to feel a little bit better. Doesn't mean it's still not sick. It's just not as sick. And the market tends to pick up on that a bit. Now, I saw a very funny video because it's back to school time. Uh, you know, the reason Danny, Danny Ratliff usually joins us here on Wednesday. He's not here today because today's the first day of school um, for his kids. And I know it, it varies a couple of days. My daughter is uh, meeting me today for lunch at 1130 because she starts school <laughs> Monday. So this is her last two rock. Uh, so everybody's getting ready to go back to school. So I saw a very funny video, but it's, it's very much the kind of the, this analogy for how we view economic data. The mother says she makes this video to her to her kid and she says, look, when school starts, you've been living off a diet of Cheetos and Coke all summer. I don't want to hear about your stomach doesn't feel well. You can't go to school today. We're not doing that. And she went through all the things, you know, that kids do during the summer that all of a sudden is a problem when it comes back to school. And she says, we're not doing that. You're going to take your lunch to school because I'm packing it for you and you're going to eat it because you've been eating the same crap all summer. You're going to eat it at school. And so this is the same way we look at the economic data. You know, when things are great, we go, it's all it's all great. When it's not great, it's all terrible that we never look at the the rate of change or the changes in this data that tell us if things are getting better or getting worse. And that's how we have to, that's how we have to kind of look at things. We have to start looking at the trend of the data rather than just the message that it's supposed to be giving us. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Employment. Good example. Employment is still fine, right? Creating 189,000 jobs. So, Obviously, nothing wrong with the economy, right? We're still creating a lot of jobs. But the rate of job growth is slowing, right? The trend of the data in job growth is slowing. That's what we need to pay attention to. It suggests that the economy is indeed slowing down. Now, that does not mean it's recessionary, but it is slowing down. So this big surge in activity that we had in 2020, 2021, 2022, because of all that monetary stimulus, that M2 as a percentage of GDP, which was massive, is fading. It is coming out of the economy. People do have less money to spend. That's going to slow down the rate of job growth. That's going to slow down the rate of hiring. So, yes, we're going to, receive, we're going to see that data return back to normal at some point, because it's going to have to be reflective of the activity that is actually going on in the economy. So we're going to get to that point. That will also impact earnings, earnings growth, etc. And that's what small and mid-cap companies are telling you. That's what I was saying earlier. In small and mid-cap stocks, they're still in a bear market. Small and mid-caps are very, very, and we've said this so many times, small and mid-cap stocks are very sensitive to economic activity because they're small. They don't have the ability to do stock buybacks. They don't have the ability to do you know, a lot of leverage, these type of things. They just don't have that kind of ability. They don't have that access. 
So they're very dependent upon the cells that they make and the activity that's occurring with the economy. And what small and mid caps tell you is that underneath the surface of what's happening with these large cap companies like the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles of the world, there's actually still a good bit of economic weakness. And, that, and we know that, right? We know that. But do we start to see some improvement? That's going to be the question. And, and again, you know, this is, you know, kind of the point of the article yesterday. It's kind of the point of, of Michael's article today is there's still just a tremendous amount of stimulus within the economy. Just, a, just a, a massive amount of it. You know, just because I send I send five dollars to Brent, and Brent spends it, doesn't mean that the five dollars is now gone. He spent the five dollars. Well, where'd the five dollars go? It went to somebody else who he bought a product from, who now has his five dollars. They then spent that five dollars on something else. So those people now have five dollars. Right? Those people spend it on something else, and so the next group has $5. That $5 takes a long time to circulate through the economy to where it begins to just you know, fade into the midst of, so to speak, of normal economic activity. It takes a while. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of this stimulus. It's still there. It's coming out. Savings rates are declining. A lot of the stimulus is still fading. But there's still a lot of that activity still going on within the economy, and that's why things have been more resilient than we would have expected. Okay, quick break, we'll come back. More of The Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. One of the key concerns that has been floated around over the last year or so has been the word stagflation. In fact, if you take a look at the Google searches of stagflations in 2020, the word stagflation in 2021, there was a massive spike in the number of people searching for stagflation. And, you know, this is a period of high inflation, low growth. And of course, this was, you know, kind of the, the big overriding concern. And that's all but disappeared lately. I mean, we had, you know, if you take a look at, again, if you go back and kind of look for the word, you know, Google searches on stagflation, nobody's really searching for that anymore. Uh, concerns about a recession have basically evaporated. Uh, take a look at the number of analysts expecting recessions that's dropped markedly. So the, the, the adoption of the soft landing scenario is now becoming kind of the, the, the main, excuse me, mainstream thesis for the markets. So we have, we have economic growth um, returning to normal. Now, right now, the Atlanta Fed has GDP growth for the third quarter pegged at 4%. So we've cranked out about 2% growth over the first two quarters. They're now expecting a 4% growth rate in the third quarter. That's probably that will slow down um, as we get further into the the third quarter. I mean, this is only 
the beginning of August, right? So we have August, September still. So we're likely going to see some, you know, kind of some weaker economic data come in and that'll bring that down. But probably still it's going to peg around 3% for the third quarter. So again, it's not bad growth, right? 2%, 3% growth. That's not bad growth, economic growth. And this is despite higher interest rates and, and everything else going on in the economy. So the economy is being pretty resilient here. Um, and inflation is falling. We're now down to 3% inflation. So, the, so obviously, if inflation is falling and economic growth is doing okay, then stagflation really isn't as much of a concern. And that's why you're seeing that concern about stagflation now beginning to disappear. And you're also kind of seeing the concerns. And again, if you're growing at 2 or 3%, which we are right now, then the concerns of recession are going to fade. And that's also happening. Now, this doesn't mean that two quarters from now, three quarters from now, four quarters from now, we can't be talking about recession again, right? And it actually wouldn't be surprising. As we said last year, everybody was expecting a recession. If, everybody, if all experts agree, something else tends to happen. Well, last year, all experts agreed we're going to have a recession. And guess what? Something else tended to happen. Now, all experts agree that we won't have a recession. So we'll see. But the issue of stagflation is, is interesting from the standpoint that you know, we still have a tremendous amount of deficit financing going on. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, we're getting ready for elections, so you hear a lot of talking points come out. Biden administration has created more jobs than any other president in history. Well, not really. Because you have to factor in the fact we shut down the economy. And then we said, okay, now you can reopen back up. So all we did was hire a bunch of people back, of people that we laid off. That's not really creating new jobs, right? So when you really talk about employment, you're talking about how many new jobs were created during that administration. Remember, the presidents don't, no president creates jobs, right? Jobs are created by businesses. The president that happens to be in office gets credit for the job creation because, well, he was president, right? But he didn't really do anything to create jobs. But we have to talk about jobs as a standpoint of creating new jobs, right? So really, the question becomes how many new jobs have been created from the pandemic peak, right? So going into the pandemic, before we shut down, if we had 1,000 jobs, total employment, right, so 1,000 people, and today we're at 1,010 people, right, we've created 10 jobs. We didn't create... 510 jobs because we laid off half the half the population, right? And then hired half that population back. So we have to really measure it from where we were pre-pandemic to where we are now. That's how many new jobs have been created. And that hasn't been fantastic, right? And that's that would be expected, right? That we, we hired people back, but there really hasn't been a need to overhire to a tremendous degree. And businesses have been very very cautious about this. And over the last year or so, we've talked to a lot of companies. Uh, Amazon's a good example, laid off 27,000 employees, trimming back, kind of rebalancing the workforce for where we are economically. You know, based on supply and demand, I need this many employees. So I overhired, you know, coming out of this because we had $5 trillion worth of stimulus. People were buying things like crazy. I overhired people 
And now that that stimulus has faded, I don't need those people, right? So we're seeing a rebalancing of that labor force within the economy back to what the economy, that supply and demand within the economy actually generates. So when we talk about stagflation, you know, it's a high inflation, low growth environment, but inflation is falling. Right, you're at 3% inflation right now. Employment's doing okay. Economic growth is doing okay. So we're just kind of really returning to normal trends. So all these fears of stagflation and massive recessions and all these things have all started to kind of fade now because, well, they haven't happened. It doesn't mean they won't happen at some point in the future. But it could be a year from now, could be five years from now, could be six months from now, right? We just don't know when this is going to happen. But eventually they will, right? Eventually we'll have a recession again. Don't know when. Something will cause it. And, you know, then then markets will respond accordingly. But that's the issue. So, it's, again, it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of this stuff fade. However, there is a risk, and we've talked about this before, deficit spending is going to have to increase. And what well, is increasing, right? So we had this massive surge in the deficit because of the stimulus payments. The current administration is taking credit for that reduction in the deficit because we didn't renew the stimulus, right? But all we did was just not spend the same amount of money, so the deficit reduced. But now the deficit is back onto its normal trend, and we're now at the big— if you X, if you X out that $5 trillion surge in the deficit, we actually have the biggest deficit on record. X that, stimul that round of stimulus. Because we're continuing to spend more and more money— to support the economy. And now that interest payments are making up a, a, almost a trillion dollars of just servicing debt, you know, servicing our, our debt, that's eating up about one-fifth of our tax revenue just to service the debt. And then, of course, the rest of that pretty much goes to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. So the deficit is going to continue to increase and... As a function of that, there is a risk of much slower economic activity in the future because deficits are going to track along and are a function of slower economic growth. Why? Because we're issuing debt for non-productive purposes and we have to service that debt. So that detracts revenue from productive uses into debt service. So you get slower economic growth. This also leads to slower rates of inflation. Also leads to lower rates on interest rates. Because you simply can't afford to maintain high interest rates in a highly leveraged economy. And this is the one mistake that you know I'm, I'm hearing a lot lately, and we're going to touch on it in, in this weekend's newsletter, is that... Oh, well, debts are, you know, the, the interest on the debt's going to have to go up because we're issuing all this debt. So interest rates have to go up. And this is one of the, the big stories. Stagflation is not a risk anymore. Recession is not a risk anymore. Not right now. Okay. 
interest rates going to five or six percent would certainly cause a lot of problems. You know, so if interest rates on a 10-year treasury go to five or six percent, as predicted by <clears throat> some of some of the smartest people in the country, you know, Jeremy Grantham, Ray Dalio, others talking about interest rates going to five or six percent. In theory, they are correct. Assuming that the bond market is controlled solely by buyers and sellers. In other words, you have a group of individuals and they say, hey, look, you're issuing too much debt. The debt's been downgraded in terms of its credit rating, so I'm going to demand a higher interest rate payment on my debt. And that would be a true story in an environment where it was only rational buyers and sellers controlling the debt. But that's not the environment we live in. In a highly leveraged economy where you have to increase deficit spending just to support economic growth, and again, we have no, no fiscal responsibility in Washington, you can't have a normally functioning bond market. And as a function of that, interest rates will not be allowed to rise, and we'll talk about that after the break, because the CBO just came out with a forecast for the debt in the U.S. In order to issue that much debt, you have to have a guaranteed buyer. We'll talk about who that'll be right after the break. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, welcome back to the show. So, just talking a little bit about stagflation, and you know, there was a lot of concerns about stagflation early on, low growth environment, high inflation, inflation falling. So, stagflation really kind of no longer a concern never really was a concern because the inflation was never organic. And, you know, we, we said this, you know, kind of many times in the past is that, you know, the stagflation argument had some validity if you had, you know, a normally operating economic environment. But the inflation was a function of shutting down the economy, crimping demand, shutting off, dem uh, sorry, sorry, shutting off supply. And then giving people a bunch of money, which just created this massive demand boost. And that's why you had inflation, right? It was all artificial. And so not surprisingly, inflation's falling. We've been saying this since last year. Inflation was going to fall sharply just because the money's evaporating and your year-over-year comparisons, et cetera. So that's why stagflation was never a big issue. And now it's gone away. Now the big concern is, is interest rates. And, and so we're issuing all this debt, and now interest rates have to go up, right? And this is the thesis. And the CBO just recently came out with their forecast showing just an exponential increase in debt through 2053. And this has also gotten people very concerned about the fact that, you know, well, if you have to issue that much debt, interest rates have to go up. We've got to have 5 6 7% interest rates. The problem is, and again, as I said in the last segment, if you had a normally operating environment, that would be true. 
we don't have a normally operating environment. If the government is going to issue increasing levels of debt, which they will, they cannot do that into a rising interest rate environment. The economy can't sustain higher interest rates. Think about for a moment all the things tied to debt in the economy today, which, by the way, we have the highest, you know, just we're basically running a five to one leveraged economy just on the government side. It's almost 10 to one when you include consumer debt, et cetera. We have a tremendous amount of leverage creating each dollar's worth of economic growth in the economy. And, and the vast majority of that debt has been issued at very low interest rates. So think about all the things that happen in the economy based on interest rates, buying cars, buying houses, taking trips, putting on a credit card, you know, um, making purchases, everything, right? Everything that we do as consumers and where our economy is 70% driven by consumption is all done on credit for the most part. So what happens when interest rates go up, those payments go up, and people wind up having to spend less because their debt service requirements go up? So I only have so much money coming in. I'm not the government, right? I can't print more money as an individual. I have to stop consuming as my payments go up. So economic activity slows down, economic growth slows. And this is why throughout history, there's a very high correlation between interest rates, inflation, and economic growth. Because they're all a function of each other. And so when you talk about interest rates going to 5 or 6 or 7% on the 10-year treasury, think about the impact that has across the entire economy. Now, could you have 5 6 or 7% interest rates? Yes, you could. As long as you had strong organic economic growth running at 5 6 or 7%, wages were rising, and inflation would also be running along at 5 6 or 7%. And that would be completely normal. We've seen that before in history back in the 80s. So as long as you have good, strong, organic economic growth, not one driven by stimulus, I'm talking about just normal or organic activity, right? So we have to produce first before we can consume. That means that we're all, we've all got good paying jobs. We're all making money. We're all living within our means. We're doing all the right things and we're consuming. And as, and as we get raises at work and we hire more people, that's more people to spend money. They go spend money in the economy. Prices go up. You have inflation because of demand. That creates more profits for companies that hire more people, so forth and so on. So it all works. But that's in a low leveraged economy. That's why it worked back then. Can't work today. Too much leverage. So when interest rates go to 5, 6, 7%, immediately breaks hit. But setting that aside for a moment. 5, 6, or 7%, completely normal in an environment where you have normal buyers and sellers. The problem, we don't have a normal bond market. The Federal Reserve, central banks, globally, have, ex have massively expanded their balance sheets. They have been a primary buyer of debt over the last 13 years. And that's not going to change in the future. Yes, right now, they're doing quantitative easing, 
to absorb some of the excess that was done from these $5 trillion in stimulus payments, but that will end. And they will have to begin to monetize the debt again in order to keep rates low. Rates can't go up because eventually the Federal Reserve will step in to suppress interest rates as you have an economic hiccup because of higher rates. So every time rates rise to the point that it becomes a, a, a threat to economic activity or financial stability, the Fed will push rates lower in order to remove that threat. Financial stability is their number one concern. So the reason that interest rates can't go higher is that eventually the Fed will step in and start buying the debt to push rates lower. And in fact, over the next 30 years, as the CBO has predicted debt to rise, the Federal Reserve will have to monetize roughly 30% of that debt to keep interest rates in, in line. That means the Fed's balance sheet will be close to $40 trillion by 2053. So, no, interest rates can't go up. In fact, right now, bonds are the most oversold on record. And we're getting very close to that point to where the Federal Reserve is going to have to start to step in as the economy continues to slow, and they will when, when the economy slows further. Doesn't mean a recession, but just slows. When the slowdown in the economy becomes a concern, the Federal Reserve will step in and start lowering rates and begin to buy bonds. So will central banks around the world. Because, again, it's just a function of math that economic activity can't survive in a higher interest rate environment. And, again, it's because of the amount of leverage in the economy today that we've never had before. And that leverage has been increasing sharply over the last 13 years because of all this Federal Reserve intervention. And again, you know, we talked about the, you know housing prices yesterday, right? Everybody's complaining about, well, how, I can't afford a house. I can't afford a house. I get it. Housing prices were super sustainable and affordable through 2019, 2020. It's just been the last three years that they've become very unaffordable. And the reason has been because of all this money, right? Everybody went out and bought houses. Right? You give somebody a check and they go, wow, I can afford to go buy. I can, I can afford my down payment now because I can do a 3% mortgage. And they run out and bought, they bought houses. They were buying houses unseen. They were buying houses they didn't even know they wanted. And again, so you have price increases. But that's what happens. And so we've absorbed all of this low interest rate debt. And now as interest rates go up, it, that, that higher interest rate is the threat to the economy. And that's why, you know, over the course of the next year to 18 months, and we keep talking about this, bonds are going to be your best investment. They're going to outperform stocks. They're going to outperform everything. In fact, just yesterday... In my personal account, I doubled my bond position yesterday for the same reasons. It's going to take time, right? These are not overnight transitions that occur. But when, you know, this is some basic primary economic math that is going to work out.
It's like card tricks, right? You can here, here's a here's a mathematical card trick that you can do at home and it works every time. And I I don't know why it works. It's just the math. Take a pair of dice and roll a pair of dice <clears throat> twice. So let's say you roll an eight and an eleven, right? So the eight is an eight, right? And eleven is a jack. Take a, take a deck of 52 cards, shuffle it up, spread it out, and somewhere in that deck, there will be an eight and a jack together. And you can roll those dice every single time, and it's a function of math, but that trick will work every single time. There will always be those two cards together. Not the, I mean, any two cards you roll, those two cards will be together somewhere in that deck of 52. Not necessarily the same suit, but somewhere in that deck, an eight and a jack, a six and a five, whatever it is, whatever you rolled, those two cards will be together every time. It's just a function of math. This is a function of math. Interest rates have to go lower because of the debt. And that's why bonds, again, continue to be the most undervalued asset in the market, period, hands down. And if you're buying value, there's a value play for you. And it's just a function of math. All right. Uh, wraps up the show for today. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send your questions, comments, emails. Michael's latest article is out right now about stimulus, consumption, and the economy. And in this weekend's newsletter, we'll be doing a technical review of the markets as well. So make sure you subscribe to the newsletter. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.